So the other day I was um, listening to an interview, and there was an interview with a, with a, with a young man, his name is Derek Black, and uh, it was a really interesting interview because Derek Black's family um, started a website uh, called Stormfront, which is like the oldest um, white nationalist, white supremacist website. It was like before websites were really a thing, they, they had one in sort of the English-speaking world, and um, it was actually just taken down last week, so uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that. You can have your own opinion, but I'm, I'm grateful that it was taken down. Praise God for that. And uh, anyway, this kid, Derek, he grew up in this family, this really strong white supremacist KKK-related family. He actually ran a kid's page on the Stormfront website, which I can only imagine uh, what like a kid's page on a white supremacist website is like. But and when he went to college... I think that he sensed that this was an opportunity for him to start over. I don't think it's the thing you lead with when you get to college. Like, oh, my family started a you know, white supremacist site. And um, what happened was that he fell into a community with some, uh, some Jewish students. And he got involved with them because they would do these dinners, these uh, dinners and discussion. And he was invited into this community knowing full well that, um, that how he felt about them. He's strongly anti-Semitic. I'm going to pull this down a little bit. And, um, but over time, and because of the acceptance that he felt that he was invited into this group and was free to process his stuff, over time with these friends, he began to unpack and unlearn and move away from his uh, white supremacist uh, ideology. And he was actually being interviewed talking about what had happened in Charlottesville, and strongly renouncing it, and also giving some insights into how the movement works, and sort of, in a lot of ways, working against what his parents had done. His dad said about him when, when he, basically, he, he told his dad where he was coming from. His dad said, I wish I'd never had a son if I'd known it was going to be this painful for you to, to leave our ideology. So you can only imagine the transformation that's taking place in this guy's life. And more often than not, transformation in our lives happens because we are part of a community. It very rarely, transformation rarely happens in isolation. For example... Um, uh, there can be there can be these big events that change whole communities, and uh, this past Sunday was just the tenth anniversary of when the Appalachian beat Michigan in football when you guys were all like very young, and I was out of college, so feeling old. But um, uh, maybe you don't even realize how much that one game changed this entire community and really changed the way Appalachian does things in the way we were thought of. And uh, those who followed Jesus right during his life and death and right after his resurrection, were basically, like, the number of them was like one-third of this room, was all the people that followed Jesus. And in a single event, which was a sermon that Peter preached that we looked at last week, they swelled to over 3,000 people in one moment. And uh, what was that community like? Can you imagine? I mean, this is something, the Christian church did not exist. There wasn't all this background. And immediately, it's over 3,000 people in this community. And that's what our passage is talking to us about tonight. What happened to this community in this moment that made this community so transformational to the world? Um, if you could read in your handout, the, uh, this, this text is there, or if you have a Bible. If you need a free Bible, there's some on the back page, on the back table. Just grab one. Uh, this is the word of the living God. This thing just still feels super loud. I'm going to get way down here. It's going to pick up my stomach rumbling in a minute. Um, <laughs> That was my lunch. Uh, sorry. Uh, that was a terrible joke. Um, 
All right, uh, Acts 2, uh, 41 through 47. This is the word of the living God. So those who received his word, this is Peter's sermon, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's God's word. I'm going to ask for his blessing as we consider it. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your word. And um, no matter where we're coming from tonight, no matter whether we're excited to hear from your word, confused, uh, despondent, uh, distracted, uh, we know that you know us, and we ask that you would speak to us um, as individuals and as a group that we would see Jesus. Uh, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you, I've had the chance to hang out with some of y'all's families, have dinner with your family and all that, and I'm always really interested to know like what people's families do when they when they get together. I grew up an only child, a single mom, and so like we didn't have these like intense like traditions or whatever. But um, some of you guys, you know, you might be the family that like when you get together, like everyone just watches TV and like you're like we're just cool being together. We can look at TV, look at our phones. Uh, maybe like I imagine like. Uh, like, really good families, like, tight families, like, play, like, Risk, you know, and they laugh and they, like, drink cocoa and stuff. Um, that might be your family. Uh, some of your families, like, you might, like, we just don't get together because when we do, like, we have an argument every time and we fight. That might be your family. Um, and the work of Jesus through his spirit in our lives changes what we do. It changes how we spend our money. It changes how we spend our time our attention, what we do with our affection, what we do with our anger. And the question for us tonight is, what does the church do? Because what your family does when you gather together says a lot about who you are. And what the church does when we gather, and I, when I say we, I'm going to use a lot of we and us. And I don't mean tonight, I don't mean that in the sense of like there's insiders and there's outsiders to this, but I'm just talking about what does the, the Christian community, the church, do when, the, when we gather Together, And you can be part of Christ's church, part of the Christian community, and not believe. And you're welcome uh, into that. But the first thing that the church does as we walk through this passage is that the church gathers around the word. Okay, like we're doing tonight. Tonight we're looking at the Bible. And if you look in the passage, the first thing it says, now, you know, they just grew to this huge group. The first thing that it says is, is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to God's word. These apostles were the people that had followed Jesus and were the closest to him. And they had this message. People like Peter, James, John, Matthew, later Paul. They had this message that is and always has been central to the life of the Christian community, the life of the church. It's this message that, this, that God himself became man, lived with us, died, and was raised And uh, in the church, we're not united by our best ideas. We're not united by our sense of how the world should work, and we get together and work on that. But we hang actually on every word that comes from God. We receive who we are from someone else. And that word comes to us in the scripture. That's why when RUF gets together on Wednesday nights, or you get together in your community group, we gather around the word because we believe that God is speaking to us, has something to say to us. And that's why the church on Sunday morning opens the Bible, should open the Bible, 
in worship, we don't come together to bolster our view of the world that we already have and look for ways to justify it. On the contrary, we come together to receive a new vision, uh, a new view of the world that God gives to us in his word. Uh, one of my favorite parts of, of Harry Potter, I just reread the first Harry Potter book with my kids over the summer, and it's like magical to watch a four-year-old process Harry Potter. Um, it's awesome. You guys always knew about Harry Potter pretty much your whole life. But one of my favorite things is when Harry's living with the Dursleys, and the letters start to show up from Hogwarts, right? You know, there's the first letter, and he gets it, and he's about to read it, and it's snatched out of his hand. And then all the letters start pouring in, you know, they're coming through the mail slot, coming down the chimney, and his uncle is getting super mad and, like, nailing up the, the, the mail slot. And Dumbledore is trying so hard to get this word to Harry because he knows that when Harry receives this word, it's going to change everything for him. The word that he gets from Dumbledore is everything. It changes his view of himself, Right? his own value. It changes how he looks at his past. It changes how he looks at his future. It actually changes the nature of reality itself for Harry because he goes from just a kid being like abused by a family to realizing the world is enchanted and full of magic and full of wizards. It changes everything for him. And when we gather around God's truth, which is given to us through Jesus, who's the living word, and through the scripture, we hold it with all the hope and the truth that Harry held that letter from Dumbledore because we say this is a word from the outside that changes literally everything for me. And saying that you love Jesus but not caring about the Bible and not um, committing yourself to it, submitting yourself to it, being a, a Bible person, um, it's kind of like a husband saying that he loves his wife but he's not really all that concerned with what she has to say to him. Um, that a wife saying she loves her husband, but she never reads his texts. Um, we love what God says to us because we, we believe that he's speaking to us in his word. So Christians are and must always be teachable. Must always be people that are open to being taught. We must always return to God's word because it, re- or, it reorients us in the world. But commonly we think, especially in our moment, Okay, I've got Jesus, I've got the Bible, like that's basically enough for me. And the second thing the church gathers around is one another. Because just to have the scripture and to have Jesus is not enough. The second thing it says, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The church gathers around one another, around other people. It says later on that they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes. They got together with each other, they fellowshiped together, they spent time together, they broke bread, they had meals together. And from the very beginning, the church has been centered on a communal life together. There's no such thing as doing the Christian life just on your own. Christians are social, dependent on and devoted to others. And just inherently not individualistic as a people. Unless a believer is stranded in a situation where they're the only Christian person there or they're by themselves. um, Your life doesn't make sense in isolation. If you're on your own as a Christian, actually like 80% of the New Testament like literally doesn't apply to you. Because the, the entire Bible assumes that you're doing this life with Jesus with other people. Um, and here's why that's good news for you tonight. Many of you are just terribly lonely. Like soul debilitatingly lonely. I was reading this New York Times opinion piece. And it was talking about loneliness on college campus, and uh, it was just sto- I was just reading these stories, and I'm like, man, I've heard I've just I've heard this before. Um, this feels so familiar to the experience that I hear from y'all. 
But one stood out to me. He was an 18-year-old guy. He was a freshman in college. He gets there his first week. And he doesn't know anybody. He gets invited to a party. He's like, okay, I'll meet some people. But when he gets to the party, he doesn't know anybody. And no one's like, hey, dude, you know, like moving toward him. So he starts drinking. And he's, he drinks a lot because he's not sure, like, kind of what to do with his hands, you know. And uh, <laughs> he drinks so much. I mean, I, you've probably been there. You're like, uh, I guess I can just look like I'm having a good time, right? And um, he ends up sick, like very sick, on a bench in his residence hall. And people are just walking by. And what he, what he said, the thing that stood out from him from that experience was, he said, there I was alone with all these people around. And that just like hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, that is what I hear from you. I'm here and there's all these people around, but I'm lonely. I feel totally alone. And part of what the, the article said that I appreciated was, that we always tell freshmen, like, okay, you don't want to eat too much, you gain that freshman 15, or don't, you know, don't party too hard, or whatever. But eating and drinking are often not celebration, but sadness. Like, trying to deal with the fact that you are there and you feel alone. Because nobody says anything, right? This is why I'm trying to bring it up. I will listen if the 33-year-old guy says it. It's true, right? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. No, no one says, like, I cried quietly on my bed because, like, I just realized I'm... I'm the only one here. And I don't even know this person that's sleeping in the room next to me. It was just me. And the good news for you tonight is that Jesus loves you enough not to just unite you to himself, but to unite you meaningfully to other human beings, to other people. You were created not to just want other people, but to actually physically need the presence and company of other people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany, and he was actually killed. Um, the word we use for when someone's killed for their faith is, is that he was a martyr. He was martyred because he opposed Hitler, and, uh, and he opposed the Nazis. And uh, he has this great little book called Life Together. I recommend it to you. But this is what he says. Listen to how good this is for us. He said, therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And that's what Jesus does for us through other people. Christians gather around one another just as we gather around the word. And uh, the church isn't just um, a, a community of people. It's, not, it's, it's really not like another network of people because the church doesn't just send a, uh, gather around each other, but the church gathers around God himself. If you look in the, in the passage, in, in, in uh, the, the end of verse 42 there, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, when it says the breaking of bread, it's not just talking about eating together. It's actually talking about what we call the Lord's Supper, which is a sacrament. Um, what has always been central to the church has been what we call the sacraments and prayer. And the sacraments are baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Um, they're outward signs of what God does inside of a person, right? We can't see what's happening in someone's heart, but these sacraments show it to us. Baptism shows our washing from sin, right? And that we are accepted into God's people. We, God's mark is put on us, and he's, we're brought into his family. The Lord's Supper, you know, like when you take that, it's a, that little bit of bread and it says, this is Christ's body broken for you, and then the, the cup of wine says, this is Christ's blood that's shed for you. That shows us Jesus' death and our need to be nourished, body and soul, 
by God. And it's actually why RUF is an arm of the church. I'm a minister in Christ's church, but this isn't the church. We don't do the sacraments. You actually, this is not enough to be here. You need to be in the local church if you want to experience what God has for you because the sacraments are there. And the Holy Spirit works powerfully through the sacraments and through prayer to grow us in grace. But here's the thing. They're not just acts of religious devotion. They're not just things that religious people do because that's what we do. They are acts of dependence. The sacraments are acts of dependence upon Jesus because you will never outgrow the thing that brought you in if you're a Christian. And that thing is that you have been made right with God through Jesus. That is the thing that brings us in, the powerful truth and reality that brings us in, and the thing that we stay connected to, that he took, Jesus took the filth of our gossip and our judgmentalism and our pride uh, and the way that we look at other people and use other people and the way that we despise God. He took that filth onto himself. Um, and I don't want to be more earthy than the Bible talks about these things, but I don't want to be less. Like he put it on himself like an excrement soaked blanket and he took it upon himself and he washed you pure and clean in baptism. And he could not stand to see you perish, to see your body broken and your blood shed because of your sin. And so he gave his body and blood in the supper. And, and, and he inexplicably hears us when we pray. Like when we pray, he says, not only do I hear you, I care. And he's more quick to respond than we are to go to him and to ask. This is what we have in the sacraments, that, that God gives us soul food for our bodies and for our souls. Um, and they're acts of dependence that shape our life together. There's nothing more central to our life together than our dependence on Jesus. And this is, again, I'm going to quote Bonhoeffer because he just puts it so well. He says, without Christ, we should not know God. We could not call upon him nor come to him. But without Christ, we also would not know our brother, nor would we come to him. The way is blocked by our own ego. Christ opened the way to God and to our brother. When Jesus came and lived and died for anyone in this room that puts their faith in him, he not only broke down every wall between you and him, he broke down every wall between you and your brother and sister in the Christ, no matter where they come from and no matter what they look like. And that's why forgiveness in the church, in the Christian community, is freely given and received. Because we are continually being reminded that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is our hope. That is the thing that that marks our relationships. And now we freely have Jesus and we have one another. Um, This is one of the most beautiful realities of the church because this is what it means. Um, It means that very often your neighbor or your brother or sister is also your enemy. When the, when, the, when the Bible says, okay, love your neighbor, love your brother and sister, and love your enemy, we think those are like separate groups of people. But they're often the same person. And that means that we can always move toward our enemy in love because we have been received as enemies to God and reconciled to him. And we need more than good intentions or good feelings to reconcile relationships. I mean, some of you guys have been in unreconciled relationships. Some of you guys have no idea what's coming in the next couple of years in terms of your relationships, and you got to have more than wanting to do it. And my question is, what power do you have for reconciliation that is better than God reconciled me to himself when I was an enemy and now I want to move toward you? So we gather around the word, we gather 
around each other, and we gather around God in our dependence on him. And the last thing is this. If you look in verses 44 and 45, it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now remember, there's 3,000 plus people, and like a couple days later, there's going to be 5,000 more people. And it's not like they go, well, this is just how we do life in the church. This is what it's like to be Christians. These are Jewish believers that had just realized that the Messiah has come and that everything has changed for them. And they're suddenly trying to figure out what does it mean to be this new body of Christ. And immediately, their knee-jerk reaction is to be radically hospitable and radically merciful. It says that they don't even consider their own things themselves. They're selling their possessions and distributing the money to those that are in need. At the end of chapter 4, it does actually say they didn't even consider their belongings to belong to themselves, but they held everything in common. When I was first, I first came to RUF as a student at Georgia Southern, and I was hearing th- this good news, one of the things that just stood with me the most is this idea, and I remember my campus minister saying it, Christians are stingy with our sex, and we're promiscuous with our money. And to me, I just thought that that was so beautiful that we held our, our sexuality in, in such a way that like, just gave so much like, just sanctity to it. And yet we were so called to be so free and promiscuous. And just, we just like to play with giving our money to those that are in need. Um, the, the church gathers for the good of their neighbor. We gather around God and we gather around each other and around the word. And we gather for the good of our neighbor. And the question for you tonight is, so what? Like, why does any of this matter? If you weren't asking it, you are now. Um, And I want to give you two images as we bring this thing down uh, that the Bible uses to talk about Christian community and to talk about the church. And the first is this. The Bible says that the church is a body where, where Jesus is the head and where each part of the church, each member of the church is actually a part of that body, a member of that body. And you will know that some of the most sensitive and painful parts of your body are the smallest parts of your body. If you stub your like baby toe, it is if you break your baby toe, it's like life is over, right? Um, uh, you can actually get along better with like a sprained knee than you can with like a uh, with a broken toe. And that the reality is that when even the smallest parts of your body are in pain, the whole body suffers. And th- this is explicit to us in the scripture. That when a small part of Christ's body is in pain, the whole body feels it. And my question for you is, if you're a believer, are you meaningfully connected enough to other Christians that when they hurt, uh, that you hurt when they hurt? That when they're in pain, you're actually, it's causing pain to you. That you thrive when they thrive. And like everyone's like, okay, you know, that's a question I expected to hear. Maybe more to the point, are you meaningfully connected enough with other Christians that when you hurt, other people hurt? And when you thrive, other people thrive? Because often we're like willing to want to serve and feel your pain as long as you don't feel mine. Sometimes we actually use it as an excuse. And uh, my question is, have you considered what your absence is doing to the joy and the health of the rest of the body? Um, that we need one another. Christ made us into one body, and there's no pretending like that's not the case. So the, 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 the church is a body, but the church is also the household of God. Um, the church is a family, a true family. 
We have God for our father. We say we are now sons and daughters of the living God. And we have Jesus for our older brother. God the father is our father. God the son is our older brother. And that means that if someone else is a Christian, you don't just go to church with them or to RUF with them, but you are actually their kin. That you are related by blood. And uh, as an only child of a single mother, um, I will tell you that I, I just long deeply and always have for brothers and sisters. And um, I've longed my whole life for um, a father. And uh, if you're here and um, you're not yet believing in Jesus, you're considering these things. Have you considered that one of the most beautiful ways that God wants to bless you and do good to you is by making you part of his church? To be part of a family of all peoples throughout the world and throughout time. And you might be being here and you hear that and you go, yeah, but man, I've been in church. And like what you said sounds good, but I've been there, you know what I'm saying? And it's not like that. Um, number one, I'd say amen. Um, and number two, I'm gonna, I would ask this. How are you meaningfully involved in helping? The church become what it is, what, what Jesus says it already is. And uh, my second question to you would be, um, does the church need to be more or less biblically Christian than this image? Um, when Martin Luther King Jr. Was, um, was, was providing much of the moral voice to the civil rights movement, he wasn't calling on white Southerners to be less Christian. You understand? He was calling on white Southerners to be more Christian, to actually start living like the things they said they believed. He was calling on the church to love the word and say, look at what the word says about the dignity of human beings. He was calling on the church to love our life together. He says, you know, we're supposed to be together. These walls are broken down. He was calling us to the reconciling grace of Jesus that's shown to us in the sacraments and prayer. He was calling us to have mercy and hospitality on one another, because he was calling us to be the church. And this picture in this passage is a picture, this picture of the church is a call to become who we already are in Jesus. Every resource to be this picture is already ours in Christ. And what does that look like? One last word from Bonhoeffer. Oh, I love this so much. He says, we have one another only through Christ. But through Christ, we do have one another, holy and for eternity. Uh, I hope that you'll come join us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you have made us one with yourself and that you have broken down the walls between us. Would you make us people that love your word, that receive it as, as a love letter from you, that we would love one another, meaningfully move toward one another, that we would be reminded continually of your, of your grace, we would be dependent on you, and that we would love mercy, and that by that we would, we would truly know what it feels like to be part of your body and to be part of your family. Thank you so much that you're our Father. I pray in Jesus' name. just like heaven.